Well, good morning, everybody. I uh, thank you very much for letting me do this. Uh, I was telling Steve I haven't put my teaching hat on in about 13 years. I used to love to do this, and and uh, you know things changed, dynamics of my life. Became a praise and worship leader. Uh, was in the children's ministry for about 16 years up at KCBT. Uh, so we did. Uh, well, I say that from 2006 to 2007, or excuse me, 1996 to 2007, we were part of the children's ministry there, and then we came here and we're part of the children's ministry for the first six or seven. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I was just going to jump into this lesson, but last night I was laying, and it about 13 or 14 years ago. I met Jason McGuire and Brad McGuire in the bread aisle at Price Chopper, and I was angry. You know, I was I was uh, distraught and distracted by what was going on. We were building this giant church here. We had an amazing group of people that were creating a giant machine, and the machinations were working, but we didn't have the people in the positions that we needed to be able to run the show, right? We didn't have those people in those spots that uh, we needed, so... Ichabod be on our door if we enlist the person to come and be a part of what we do. We get them recruited into the army that we are all learning about, that we are a part of, and then we just leave them to their own devices in hopes that they are able to uh, withstand the fiery darts of the adversary, right? And uh, and we did that. We, we had uh, an AIS problem. We had a lot of individuals here who wanted to get what's the young, what, what's the name of the young colt? What do you call them? Right? Uh, as far as a, a, not a foal, but a, you know, an ass, right? So, so we had a problem with getting AIS, A's and seats. That was our mindset. And we would put that notch. We got somebody else saved, you know, put that notch in our belt and then we would just leave them alone. And lo and behold, that caused a huge issue. And our church suffered from it horribly. It, 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 not just our church. I mean, every church that, that, that I know of has went through a split. You've been through a church split. I've been through two now and it's painful. It's the, it's the most horrible thing I've ever seen and witnessed and been a part of. Um, so, you know, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 20, and, and you can turn to me. I'm going to be bouncing back and forth, but it's going to be, mainly we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, but we'll be going back to Second uh, Kings, and we'll be going back to Daniel. But in Acts chapter 20, 29 through 30, you know, we were, yesterday we had the men's breakfast, and uh, we were talking, Ray, Ray brought an unbelievably amazing message just about who we are and what it is, right? So it says here in verse 20, or uh, chapter 20, I'll start in 28. Take heed therefore unto you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. I thank you. I, I ask you, Lord, to anoint this time again. Just make it to where your words and your message comes out. Uh, I, I do not. I must decrease so that you must increase, Lord. So 
make me less so that you can be more. Uh, Lord, uh, uh, again, thank you for the time to just be able to break bread with friends here. Um, Let it be profitable for all, uh, but Lord, especially for me. I love you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Sorry, I should have started that right off. Uh, So, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For this I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you not sparing the flock also of your own selves. Right? Men arise. So from within our own group Within our own sphere, within our own churches, men will arise, right? And it says, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples to themselves. And usually that's how church splits happen. You have an ego, another ego, they could, you know, clash. Next thing you know, you got to split. You've got people that want to follow Joe. You got people that want to follow Tom. You got people, you know, Paulie and this, King James, that division. And the enemy, which kind of dovetails into exactly what we're talking about. The message for today is prepare for battle or our desperate warfare. I couldn't figure out where to settle. So they're both very appropriate, both very uh, apropos. But did you know that you and I are in a battle right now? We are in a battle, right? We are presently engaged in warfare. Doug Pearson has mentioned this in the times past here in a few weeks when he preached a couple weeks ago. And even mentioned Bobby Blaine uh, as a prayer warrior. Um, Brian has taught us through Exodus, through the last month or two, about how we are an army. We are expected to be an army. Not only are we an army now for Christ, but we will come back as a conquering army, which is mind-blowing to me. So, being a soldier, are we equipped Are we prepared or are we sitting ducks? Uh, Our present predicament shows our problems are not financial. Any businessman will tell you cash flow is a symptom and not a cause. It is an indicator of a more fundamental problem. Our deficiency is not military, despite how bad they are trying to make it in pursuit of political correctness. America, the world, is in a moral freefall. But America for us because this is our home this is where we live this is what impacts us but we are in a moral free fall right we are all victims of this spiritual warfare we have media masking the truth we have courts perverting justice we have anger replacing patriotism we have schools deliberately dumbing down our youth we have replaced traditional values and heritage with multiculturalism revisionism and value relativism so you know hey however much you think you're valued that's good however much i want to value you you know we're we're to that point where we don't have any kind of standard that we hold high and say this is what we live by right we've kind of usurped all that um our government is now the purveyor of immorality 
And should we or are we surprised? Governments have always loved crises, right? They provide the rationale for increasing budgets, for bureaucracies, for subjugating the populace. That's how it's always been. They love crises, right? In our country, we learned long ago that social crises serve just as well as militaries one, as a military one would. Uh, immorality creates social crises. So it is, is it any surprise that the governments, our government especially, have an enormous incentive, incentive to promote that immorality. It used to be you couldn't see somebody smoke on TV. Now, <laughs> that's nothing. You know, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just saw that on TV. You know, or whatever it would be. Uh... So is it any surprise that our governments have an enormous incentive to promote immorality? I'm going to suggest to you that you and I are living in what I would call the age of deceit. Our schools inculcate the myth of evolution on our youth and that their existence is a result of some cosmic accident. And we wonder why they have no sense of destiny or no self-esteem, right? Disinformation is used and it is promoted uh, in its pursuit of socialism. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm ahead of my... Our science promotes despite... Uh, our science promotes this issue as far as evolution and some cosmic accident despite the truth of the facts before them. Our government continues to disseminate disinformation to promote its uh, pursuit of socialism and it would seem that our investigative institutions have pursued a path of cover-ups and obfuscation rather than the pursuit of truth and justice. I guess the question is, is who is the God of this world? Satan, right? Our enemy. He's the god of this world, right? And what's his primary weapon? Deceit. That's exactly... He's lies and the father of them, right? That is his primary weapon is deceit. So, we are engaged in a spiritual warfare going on right this very moment. For our families, for our country. How do you deal how do you deal with this what can we do you know we've all been equipped with all we need to do to go into battle so if you guys would let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and again like I said I know this will probably be by way of review for for many of us but uh, you know it's okay it's okay right word of God it does not come back void it goes out and it accomplishes its purpose so we'll start chapter 6 verse 10 and and uh you know i can say that exponentially or not exponentially but expositorily we have been taught um through great men of god jeff adams brian steve bob i mean we are so blessed in this specific specific church to have uh a deep bench of men and women that are able to be able to to break open the word of god with each other and and discern what it is right so in verse 10 let's just start here Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So let's look at this a bit closer. It says, be strong. 
It is in the present tense as to say, be continually strong. It's not a once and for all thing, right? It's a continual thing. Be strong. It's in a passive voice, meaning that you are the subject and you receive the action. And it's in an imperative mood. It is a command, right? In common day language, it would say, allow yourself to be continually strong in the Lord and be strengthened by His might. That's how we would say it today. You know, but those two little words, be strong, mean all that and so much more, right? Verse 11, the whole armor of God. We are responsible for putting on God's armor, not our own. The Greek word that is used to describe this is panoplian. Have you ever heard of the word panoply, right? Panoply is, it literally means that you have everything you need right there. When they sat down at a banquet, they had a panoply of food. They, they, they lacked nothing. There wasn't anything that they would not be able to attain, right? They have everything you need. Not part of the armor, not just a piece of it. Right? It's the panoply of it. It's every bit of the armor. That's that's the, the Greek word that's used to describe the whole armor of God. So how can we stand without being in his whole armor? Because Paul mentions this repeatedly throughout Ephesians. Be completely armed. It's amazing how most pick and choose the parts and the pieces that they want to wear as we walk. Right? It, this one's cumbersome. This one doesn't fit in my pocket. This one looks funny. This one itches, right? No, no, no. That's not how it works, okay? Before you take your next step, you need to stop and realize that we are already on enemy territory. We're already there. And if you're not in the whole armor, man, our own strength's not going to accomplish it, it, it won't, right? In our own strength, we are no match for our enemy. I don't care how smart you are, he's smarter. If we go down the list of possibilities, we will soon realize that we are outclassed in every measure, right? We need God's protection, right? And the purpose is, in fact, to stand against the enemy's schemes and methods. That's, that's what the armor's for. Now, Paul's detailed description of the armor may stem from being chained to a Roman soldier while awaiting trial, and we can see this in Acts chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. But the idioms Paul is using leads a lot of people to think that that be the case. He was chained to a soldier, and he's looking at his soldier eight hours a day, 12 days a week, 14 hours, you know, what? he's always there. They're always chained together. So, you know, it's it's not un- unwise to draw that idiom that Paul's looking at the soldier beside him, and he is, he is trying to write out what Ephesians chapter 6 uh, is talking about when it talks about the armor, right? But now think about this. Most people think that the chains were to keep Paul from escaping. But if you know anything about Paul, his viewpoint is those chains were meant to keep the soldier from getting away from me, right? Because... Paul was a man after God's own heart, right? He was almost like David in the New Testament. He, 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 was, he was that man that Christ chose, right? So, if you know anything about Paul, his viewpoint was that those chains would keep the soldier from escaping. Can you imagine being chained to Paul for a whole shift? 
But many of those soldiers we can draw from the inference in Philippians chapter 4 verses 21 through 22 that many of those have gotten saved and discovered who Christ really was, right? Because it was due to the fact that Paul witnessing to the Praetorian Guard, right? Uh, in the Philippians, the structure of the Greek, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 21, the structure of the Greek implies of Caesar's household, right? Which would also include the Praetorian Guard. And we would be remiss to think... Uh, to take uh, to think that the only take on these idioms were were those that were used by Paul because he saw the soldier right there and the references um, because those idioms right the beauty of studying God's word is that you you get a chance to get into the Old Testament right because the beauty of studying God's word is that you get the Old Testament uh, and you see that it is in the New Testament revealed and in the New Testament in the Old Testament is concealed. So if you guys want to turn, let's turn to Isaiah 59, 16. Fifty-nine. I'm trying to get there myself. Well, or if somebody's there, read that for me. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. Do you see something about the... How about 17, 7 through 16? I'm sorry, 59, 7 through 16. I'm so sorry, Steve. 7 through 16? Yeah. 7. You mean verse 17, probably? Uh, 16, 17, maybe, yes. For he... Put on righteousness as a breastplate and a an helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garment of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Okay, so there, forgive me, yeah, I, I have, I'm just missing a one. Uh, so yeah, 59, Isaiah 59, 16 through 17. There, Paul actually draws from the idiom of the Old Testament of the priest and his breastplate and what it would look like. So, you know, th- this whole thing, it's just a quick peek, right? Written hundreds of years before Ephesians was written, but it also shows the consistency of the Holy Spirit, right? And the way that Paul uses these idioms is not out of convenience since the soldier was right next to him, but they seem to carry more meaning and weight than that with the reader of the day because he wasn't he was writing to Jews, to Hebrews, who knew all about the accoutrements of the priest and what was supposed to happen inside the tabernacle, right? So what's so beautiful is that uh, it's Hebrew depth. That's that's what it is. It kind of gives the reader of the day, hey, it's not just about this soldier. This is about some of the stuff we deal with daily in our temple worship. You know? So refer to that as what he's saying. He's not trying to keep it new. He's trying to take them back into what their own their own law and their own testimony says. So, all right, back to Ephesians. Verse 12 says here this is going to be verse 12 is our strategic intelligent reports right if we are in a battle the first thing we need to know is what are we up against and someone read verse 12 
we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. So think about that. If you're a student of the Bible and the New Testament, you know that the principalities and the powers are terms in the Greek that refer to ranks of angels. They are not just some theological abstractions. They are actual beings. right? They are mentioned many times, and you should track those down on your own because it is absolutely amazing stuff. It's like a spiritual mafia, right? You want to talk about organized crime, man, this is big stuff right there. You're not, you're not playing around. You're, you're dealing with the man who made up crime. Spiritual warfare is not just contending against godless philosophies or crafty gurus or Christ-denying cultists or neo-pagan ruling rulers, but against a highly organized army of demonic forces and battalions battalions of fallen angels right not one or two but we we're taught if you know what a battalion is they are numbers upon numbers upon numbers of of angels that have fallen most churches are comfortable talking about the gentle jesus the teacher the healer but to start to talk about the other side of it and it becomes spooky and mystical and almost medieval and you can kind of go to second corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 4 to kind of get just a a feel if you want to write that down you know go back and take a look at it right for though we walk in the flesh we do not war after the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through the pulling down of strongholds right that's in essence what second corinthians 10 is saying now we tend to think of this physical realm and not about the spiritual realm right but you know that the scripture and if you do know it you know that our physical world is really a result of unseen spiritual battles dimensions we only know of four, right? Somebody turn back just a couple. Let's just turn back. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, right? And I think, yes, just make sure that's right. Yes, chapter 3, 18. And uh, that Christ may dwell, and start in 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. That's the four dimensions that we know about, right? This right here, this, right? We actually probably exist in ten or more dimensions, according to what they say. Just, just from the way that these guys didn't know anything about elements or dimensions, but lo and behold, the Spirit sure revealed it to them. You know, this is two thousand years ago before they had any of the the nomenclature that we use today to talk about science and talk about uh, the laws of entropy and, and and all that we know, right? So it's just amazing how relevant the Bible really is. You know how how you can you can read something that was written 3,000, 2,000 years ago, and it's like, okay, wow, that makes perfect sense, right? So we really do only tend to think about our, our, our physical realm but, and not the spiritual side of it. Okay, so glimpse into unseen warfare. Let's turn to Second Kings chapter 6. 
Well, yeah, and, and you know, again, if we are students of the Bible, if we've been around uh, teachers like Steve and Brian and, and uh, Bob and, and Randy and Jason for any amount of time or any teachers like that, we will know these passages. These passages will be familiar to us, but I don't think we really get to give it the import and the amount of time that it needs to be able to understand maybe what it's saying. So in Second Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23, right? it's funny how things have not changed Syria in verses 8 through 9 Syria in the days of Elijah right here is or Elisha uh, Elisha would convey to the king right so let's read this here chapter 6 verses 8 and the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with the servant saying in such and such a place shall be my camp and the man of God said unto the king of Israel saying beware that thou pass not such and such a place for thither is Syrians are come down. The Syrians are come down, right? And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there not once or twice, right? This happened multiple times, right? I mean, it happened more than once. So, the king of Syria would make a plan and Elijah would always tip off the king of Israel, verses 10 and 11. And the king of Israel would go to where Elisha told him to go and saved himself, not once or twice, but it happened multiple times to the point to where the king of Syria was like, okay, who's a mole? Who is for Israel? Which one of you guys is blasting my stuff out here and letting this guy know, right? But a servant said, no, Lord, no, no, Lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy very bedchamber. So think of that. This is the first biblical record of a phone tap. You know, this is the very first time. But, you know, all joking aside, you know, of course, it's just the spirit of the thing here. Somehow, Elisha knows the spirit of God has told him the thoughts of the enemy and has warned his benefactor, the king of uh, Israel, what's happening. But let's get back to it here in verses 13. Uh... And he said, Go and spy where he is, and I may send and fetch him. And it was told to him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Right? So, where Elisha is was obviously in a small village called Dothan, about 25 miles away, right, by camp or by night, and and they were there. And so what did he do? The king of Syria, not much has changed. Syria is still a major thorn in their side. He encompassed Dothan. Overnight, he surrounded Dothan. And, and you know, it's like... There's an army there. So Elisha had his manservant, right? And uh, verses, Well, let's read verses 15 and 16. And when the servant of the man of God had risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Elijah answered his manservant and said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Right. right? We know all about that. We know that. But Elisha's manservant gotten up and he said, you know, Master, what are we going to do? He's in a panic for 16. Right? They that be with us that are, are more than they that be with them. 
I imagine his servant was like, nice platitude, boss, but man, they are right there. I can hear the horses breathing, right? And, and in verse 17, you can almost sense the annoyance from Elisha to the Lord on behalf of his manservant. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Right? And the Lord did what? He opened his eyes and the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Because you, like I said, you can almost hear the contempt that Elisha has when he's talking to the Lord because he's like, kid, you've been with me. You've seen me. You know what's going on. God is awesome. How could you even worry about that? Lord, show him. Let him see so that way he can leave me alone. Right? In essence. I'm sure it wasn't anything like that or it could have been just like that. You know, it's kind of like when you're kids, you teach them, you teach them, you teach them, you buy books and buy books and all they do is eat the paper. (laughs) No. You're supposed to read those things and learn it, right? So, so it's, uh, Lord, you know, let the young man in on that. Let him in on it kind of thing. And the young man's eyes were opened and he saw what? That they were surrounded by the muscle of the region, right? In Syria, who was surrounded by God's force. He would see what we call the natural, right? We call the natural. We see all those things. Oh my God, there's my enemy. You know, we don't give import over to the supernatural. God allowed him to be able to see the supernatural side of what was going on, which was probably unheard of you know if you weren't a man of god you didn't get a glimpse into anything god did you know but that's that's the beauty of who the lord is is he he meets you where you're at okay so let's uh go from here right because this is just one example of an unseen realm let's go from here to daniel chapter 10 And we'll, we know the story, right? Daniel, he starts to pray and fast. And he's, and he's on his knees praying for 21 days. And, and, and we know the, the, the build up to the story, right? But in verse 12, let's just pick up there. Well, let's pick up in verse 11. Daniel 10. Yeah, Daniel 10, verse 11. And this is, well, I'll tell you, let's just go back to verse 9. Yet I heard a voice, I heard the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, it's because an an angel just appeared in front of Daniel, and he's like, and in verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands, and he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, that's that's such a bizarre question to me. You know, do you understand the words that I'm saying to you? Because Daniel was probably passed out, freaked out, starving to death because he's been fasting for 21 days, hasn't drank anything. So he's trying, he's like, Daniel, hey Daniel, do you hear me? Daniel, Daniel, do you hear me? So now Daniel's on his hands and his knees. He's like, oh, wow. I don't know if you guys have ever been without food for more than a day, two days. Okay, but after three, four, five, six, seven days, you become weak. You you are not you are not who you are. 
Right? So Daniel's weak. Not only is he weak physically, but he's weak spiritually because he's been pouring his heart out and praying. Lord, help me. Right? So, Daniel, 21 days ago, started this fasting prayer request. And the angel was dispatched then, but what took him so long? Verses 13 and 14. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For yet the vision is of many days. And this is the beginning of Daniel's 70th week period, right? This We get it. We kind of get a glimpse into this as we keep going on, right? So, now the little prince that we are talking about is not an earthly prince or a ruler here, right? It is the spiritual power behind the Persian Empire, and it's an adverse spiritual being. So skip down to verse 19 with me. And said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. There's that strong again, right? We were just reading in Ephesians. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened. God's word strengthens us. And said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Right? Notice what Daniel does. Paul draws from this event written of by Daniel using the same Hebrew word to translate to the Greek descriptive imperative word as Paul did in Ephesians 6 when he tells us to be strong. That's an inference that you could gather from Ephesians 6, right? Be strong. It is a command. It is not an automatic thing. It's something you need to do. Daniel had to do it in the presence of this angel, right? He was prostrate on his hands, his knees, and he became strong because of the word that the angel had spoken to him. Do you you understand the words that I am speaking to you? Right? And you know the rest of the story, right? That uh, the angel had to go and fight his way out. Interesting to note, though, that Michael is the only one of two named angels in the Bible. Anyone know the other one? Gabriel. Gabriel, exactly right. And... Gabriel is always seen as on a mission of annunciation about the Messiah in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And every time Michael is mentioned and seen, it is always as a military commander. Now the text would suggest that there is a demonic power, obviously, behind the worldly kingdoms. Persia, Greece, Rome in two parts, and so on. Is there a Prince of America? (laughs) You know there is. (laughs) And these are just two places in the Bible where a believer can get a vision into the spiritual realm. Many others, but that's just two places. Okay, so let's get back into Ephesians chapter 6. Because this, guys... 
Like Say it again. Oh, they're talking about battalions of fallen angels. They're talking about demonic forces, right? They're talking about the angels that fell and then battalions of their forces. So, yeah, they're talking about the scary things we always see in the movies and Constantine, and you know, we do such a poor job of trying to depict the horrors of what it would really look like or be like to be in the presence of something like that or to be, you know, but we, each one of us have experienced the effects of that type of warfare on us. Either ourselves, physically, our families, you know, myself, I'm, I'm a, I I'm a battle-hardened warrior when it comes to that. And I don't mean to say that like it's some special thing because it's not. I count myself lucky. Um, Okay, so back to Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verses 13. Now here again, we see that the whole armor of God, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And here again, we see the whole armor of God. If you're going to play this game, you better be ready, because the enemy will attack you, and all all the weaknesses in your armor. We need to be able to, as Paul says, withstand or stand against. He will list the specific pieces of armor, but first off, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that you are even involved in this battle. If you have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are involved in this battle, just on the wrong side. Right? Without Jesus, we are pawns powerless to stand against the enemy. The most surprising area we are vulnerable in is our marriages. One of the main things you will hear if you have been around people who are in ministry is... uh, Part of the ministry, right, whether you're salaried or whatever, is that if your marriage is not strong, Satan has got a foothold. Right? If your marriage is strong, you're pretty much impervious to those types of attacks. But, again, make sure your marriage is strong because that's one of the weakest areas we have. The most surprising area that we are vulnerable in is our marriage. Is one of the main things you will hear uh, if you're around those that are in ministry, which, is, you know, obviously is, by the way, is make sure your marriage is strong. Verse 14, let's go here. The first of the two elements. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Somebody turn to John 18.38. What did Pontius say? When you're there, just read it. I say unto him, what is truth? What is truth? Right? Few of us probably have raised these questions ourselves. Truth is one of the most precious treasures to be coveted. Truth is the key to success, the key to fulfillment, the key to victory, or achieving any worthwhile goal, and should be our greatest challenge in any of our endeavors. We live in a time that has ushered in astonishing achievements in technology, but conversely, it also has brought in unbelievable darkness. Right? 
Oh my God, social media, wars, new weapons, right? Uh, up to and uh, including the end of the 20th century, up to right now, has been the bloodiest, most revolutionary, most unpredictable time in human history. But the most fearful aspect is the abandonment of truth. Most, inst- most institutions deny truth even exists. All is relative. You see, in a cultural war, the first casualty is always truth. Determining truth should be paramount in our lives. It is said that if a man believes in, or what a man believes in today, he will put it in practice tomorrow. To believe in the wrong model of history or the wrong viewpoint of dispensation or God or how to rightly divide leads to enormous critical failures down the road, great tragedies and devastating consequences. Yet the correct true view of God and man in history and dispensations are the key to sanity, survival and fulfillment for each one of us. Most of the truths we have today and have held for a long time need to be re-examined. And (laughs) you would be shocked that most of the truths of the day, if you really examine them, prove to be false and deliberately so. Evolution, you know, gender, the truths that we hold true today, yeah, if you really did some study. Only by renewing our minds, right, by the washing of the water of the Word daily can we challenge the lies we encounter. We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, ready workmen who needeth not be ashamed. That's what we're required to do. Not men, women, children. We are required to do this. All right, verse 14. Uh, gird up your loins with truth. All the pieces of the armor and uh, all the weapons and all the, uh, everything that's a soldier donned were all held together by the belt. Right? And the Roman belt was about four inches wide and it harnessed all the tools. You see, the truth is the binding thing here. It gives the soldier freedom of movement just as truth gives us freedom with others and with God. Right? All of this has been prepared. It has to be prepared before the battle. You can't go try to pull up your pants in the middle of the battle. The ultimate truth, right, is the fulfillment of his promise he made to Adam and Eve in the garden, that of a redeemer. And God declares this in John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. That's pretty straightforward. Unlike the God of Islam, who is pernicious and capricious and unpredictable and always changing, not just God, it's every other God, even that little wooden one that they have on their shelf at their house, you know, there's nothing there. The best definition I have found for truth is that when word and deed become one. I can think of only one example that we have, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't close this point out without going to Psalm 51.6. God desires truth where? In our inward parts. That's right. And who is the most dangerous and pernicious source of lies? The enemy. And the enemy loves to get in there. So we are to, what, guard our hearts, for out of it come the issues of life, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that. Second element, all right? Let's go to the breastplate. and Because it, it's there in verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. 
Our most important stewardship is our hearts. The breastplate covers the heart. It secures the vitals. This alludes to the life we live. You, you can look at Romans 6, 13, um, um, 14 through 17, uh, and the earlier reference to the Isaiah 56, uh, 59, 16 through 17 breastplate. But it's talking about the integrity and the uprightness of our personal lives. Psalm David or Psalm 7, uh, David speaks of this. One of the biggest, and you can look at that, I'm not going to read it, but one of, the, um, one of the biggest problems we have in the world today is a lack of integrity. In marriages, in businesses, it is everywhere, sadly, even in the church. But we must see that the righteousness that protects me is not mine, but it's Christ's. And you can see 2 Corinthians 5.21, all of 1 Thessalonians 5, if you want to kind of revert to that. But His imputed righteousness makes our breastplate impervious to the attacks of the enemy. Verse 15. Feet shod with the preparation. Right? The soldier had what we called greaves that protected them from what's called gall traps in the time. Balls that they would have that would wrap around their legs and puncture them and, and just debilitate them and take them out. So they wore those greaves because their feet were shod for the preparation of battle, right? Uh, what Paul is saying is, is you need a new pair of shoes. Not shod with the gospel of peace, right? It's an odd phrase here. It's shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need to prepare for our invasion of enemy territory. It involves training. Right? Uh, the word feet. You can look up the word feet. It's amazing. I came across a couple of verses. Isaiah 52.7, Romans 10.15. But I cannot help but remember and think back to the time when Stephanie Wesco... Yes, Kevin? Um, something else that's really cool about their shoes that they wore back then, they had nails that kind of pointed backwards. So when, when he's saying to be prepared for the preparation, you know, it's like be that wall, you know, uh, stand your ground and well, it almost yeah, it almost makes it impenetrable. But uh, you know, I, I talk about feet shod with the preparation of gospel. Do you guys remember when? I don't know how many of us do, but how many of us remember when Stephanie Wesco came here a few years ago? Not many of us, but her husband was murdered on the field um, by a group. You know, killed right there in front of uh, one of their children, and he died martyred on the field. Right, and and I can't help but think that uh, when she came and she ministered ministered to us, as she was grieving the loss of her husband who was mur- martyred while they were spreading the gospel of peace on the field, his feet were shod with the preparation mm-hmm. to be sure. Mm-hmm. You know, he counted the cost. He knew it was always possible. I would bet. Are we prepared to proclaim? Are we are our feet prepared and shod to prepared to go and take the gospel? Not the gospel, but are we prepared to do it? Because it it takes training, right? Verse sixteen: Shield of faith. The shield of faith is the only maneuverable part of the armor. It protects the other parts of the armor. When a soldier would come back to the barracks, if there were any holes in his shield, he plugged them up right then and there. You do this before the battle. Diligence is the key to maintaining a proper shield. You examine it after every engagement and repair any damage. What about your faith? 
you have doubts, if you have problems about your biblical views, now is the time to address those. Right now. Check your shield. Shore up your doubts. Plug up those holes, whether they be about salvation or creation. Right? Is there an area that you lack? You seek counsel, especially of God. Grab a concordance or what other helps you can. Seek out a member of the body, other believers, right? That's You need to work those out now, right? You need to work those things out now before you get engaged into another battle. Because if your shield's damaged from the last encounter and you didn't repair it, it's already compromised and you're already thinking about, oh, that hole right there. I sure hope something doesn't come through that hole. You know, you shore those things up now while you're in camp. You don't wait to get into the battle to do that because the second you've done that, you have already lost, right? It's uh, <clears throat> to, uh, we can't leave this subject without pointing out that this is not talking about some blind faith here. It is speaking about trusting in the Word of God, our shield of faith. It is based on the knowledge of His Word, not something we hope, not something we feel, right? Verse seventeen. The helmet of salvation. And we're getting close to being done. So, uh, the helmet of salvation. Having a helmet obviously protected the head and gave a, uh, a sense of secure, security and assurance. The believer knows ultimately the, the, the victory is sure and certain. And one of the most important aspects of our defense uh, against Satan's attacks is our firm faith and eternal security. We are sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Scripture and by the Holy Spirit. Trust the Scriptures. Right? Sword of the Spirit. The Word of God, right? And this is the last thing that's mentioned. The Romans created a sword called the Machaira. It was a short, 24-inch, two-edged sword, and I have one, but I didn't bring it, which I'm sorry about that, meant for close-quarter combat, right? It was far different from the Alexander the Great... That's almost about that long. So about 24 inches. You could imagine. You've seen those swords. How they they splay out and then they come to a nice sharp point. And not only, you know, with the with the shield, it was... Oh, there we go. With the shield, it was... Uh, watch your eyes there. It was a striking weapon, right? It could slice, it could cut, it could slice, it could stab, it could defend. So it was completely different than the long shield and flanks that Alexander the Great would have with, you know, that's the way that they would do battle. It was completely different warfare, right? So the Machira, when it was created, right, it was a short two-inch, uh, 24-inch, two-edged sword. It was meant for close quarters combat. Um, it required special training. You could sure pick this word up. Brand new, unsaved, read it, maybe even understand it. Without that understanding part, right? Because without the Lord Jesus Christ, this is—it's foreign. It, you know, no, it, it won't root because it has no ground with which. So, when we use our sword daily, which we are supposed to, and I carry a gun everywhere I go. I didn't bring it today, but I use I'm armed yeah. every day, all day long. I don't care if I'm at the grocery store, if I'm at home, if I'm at church. If I'm on the stage and you guys see me reach for my hip, I know there are already 
layers of protection before it ever gets... But if you see me, I have direct eyes out to what goes on. Drop where you're at. Don't run. Don't panic. Don't scream. Just drop because there's something about to happen. So if you ever see me reach for my hip and I stop playing guitar, just pay attention. Okay? Now if you have a backache. Well, that's a, that's a good point. Hopefully I won't have to have, have that wor- to worry about that. But it takes extensive practice, right? Are we not supposed to... Study to show ourselves approved, being ready workmen. Right? We are to. Um, we are to hide God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. And that we would have a ready answer for those that ask us for the hope that is within us, right? I might not know the address of a specific spot, but I could sure take somebody into the Word of God. And I could show them, hey, this is why you're a sinner. This is what you can do to remedy that. And this is the reward that you have to look forward to. If any one of us can't do that, we need to do that. We've got to be able to be equipped for the preparation, the feet that are prepared to spread that gospel. Right? So, I am about done. I think that's my last page. I had more to go. But, guys, I I just want you to know the spiritual battle that we fight right now is as real as if I'm talking to you right now. Okay? And every one of us have experienced the attacks of the enemy. Some of us were able to withstand a lot of them. Some of us fell. Some of us, we were in the devil the whole time. Some of us, you know, we just needed our shield to get poked through a little bit and then we can kind of I need to address that okay I'm not so secure in my salvation or I don't know how to teach somebody else the word of God or whatever that attack might have caused that shield to to be damaged check your shield so that you can use your sword so that you can take your feet that are shod in the preparation of the good news of the gospel and take that out because the enemy wants you useless. He wants you sidelined. He wants you distracted. He wants you not involved. Because the second that you get involved, that's when, we were just talking to Bob, that's when, you know, the second you start talking about preaching the Word of God, attacks happen. I literally, two weeks ago, had this whole message ready to go and I was going to walk into Bob's class and at 8.30 in the morning, I'm puking blood. You know, i got to go get transfusions. I'm in the hospital for eight days because... My blood's whacked, you know? So the attacks happen and they are real and they will not stop because our enemy is like a roaring lion roaming about whom he may devour. And he doesn't just mean to eat you up. He means to destroy your testimony. That's what that's about. You know, it's not about consuming you, Emmett, eating you on the street. It's about eating your testimony. It's about destroying what it is that you're trying to build or what God's trying to do through you. You know, so, yeah, if we try and build it of our own, it'll be if not. What did Paul say or Gamaliel say? If it be of man, it'll be uh, be if not. If it be of God, nothing's going to stop it, right? So, uh, other than that, guys, I thank you. Uh, there's more coming, uh, but right now that's it. Thanks, so. Good morning. Hey, does anybody have their bulletin with them right now?
What uh, what is the, the theme of our uh, conference this week? What is the? Uh, it's on that flyer there that I found the bug. I thought was the name. Yeah. Found the bug. Yeah. Let's all look at that real quick. Second Chronicles thirty four. Uh, that's where that that's where that uh, whole thing got torn down, and like he reached back and pulled it out of the wall, didn't he? Uh, the model and the temple. Yeah. yeah. Just Josiah's his boys. Yeah. I think it's right around there. Uh, I just got about uh, five minutes here. And uh, let, let me read this to us. Has everybody got there? Second Chronicles 34? No. Uh, 34.15. I want to point out something here. So Second uh, Chronicles 34.14. It's actually uh, Hilkiah the priest. So does everybody know who the king was right then? Hezekiah? No. It was a couple generations later. It was uh, Josiah. Josiah. Let's go ahead and shut the other one off. Josh, shut it off for you. Ephraim. Ephraim. 